Uh, Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Hosea. Today we are in chapter 2. And our reading today will be verses 2 through 23, which will basically be the rest of chapter 2. Not sure that we will cover all of this. This will probably be a two-part sermon. But that's what they make next Sunday for, another sermon. Hear now the word of the Lord. And uh, before I read this text, again, I just want to call your attention to the quote in the front of the building, building, bulletin. Bulletins are in the front of the building, but I want you to look at the bulletin. Israel has made Yahweh a cuckold. And yet, even as he disowns her, he yearns for her repentance and restoration. He is prepared to carry out terrible threats. But he gives her an opportunity to to evade the unwanted outcome. He pleads with her. His appeal is indirect. However, addressed not to Israel, but to her children. The nation is the mother, and the individuals are the children. Yahweh explains that he speaks not directly to Israel, but rather to the children about their mother, for she is no longer his wife, and he is no longer her husband. They are not on good enough terms for a direct approach to be taken. She has left him. There is little likelihood that she will ever listen to her ex-husband. Understanding that, hear now the word of the Lord. Plead or make accusation with your mother. Make accusation, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face, and her adultery from between her breasts. Lest I strip her naked and make her, as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness, and I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feast, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, 
and the beast of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast of the days of the Baals, when she offers Uh, burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is astounding, this next section. It's astounding. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at that time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I removed the names of Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beast of the field and the birds of the heaven and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love, in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer. The grain, the wine, and the oil, they shall answer. Jezreel, I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. This is God's word, let us pray. Father, we do pray as we look at this amazing text of scripture that you would give us um, ears to hear and a heart that is responsive to the word of God. And may we today uh, not merely be spectators, but be engaged in hearing uh, the word which is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So, Lord, we pray you would strengthen the preacher and the congregation, and we pray that you would be glorified and honored and Christ would be lifted up. And we pray in his name. Amen. Do you ever think, do you ever think God's grace means something like this? It doesn't matter if I sin because God's going to forgive me anyway. That sort of leads you to the antinomian credo, which says this. Freed from the law, O blessed condition, I can sin as I please and still have remission. Or as one wise wag, let's say, I think it's George Bernard Shaw, I'm not sure, said this. I love to sin. God loves to forgive. Isn't the world wonderfully arranged? Is that really how the nature of Christian life is? Uh, In fact, there's a sense in which uh, until we understand the radical nature of the gospel of grace that we truly begin to see 
how desperately we need to be forgiven, justified, and acquitted by faith alone. Not because of what we do, but because of what he's done on our past. But grace covers past, present, and future sins. And so even as I sin, I can be confident that, yeah, I'm still justified. So does sin matter at all? And the answer of Hosea chapter 2 is emphatic. Yes. For sin is not simply breaking God's law. Sin is breaking God's heart. Let me repeat that. Sin is not simply a matter of breaking God's law. It's breaking his heart. And this all goes back to our understanding of what it means to be in covenant with God. There is definitely a legal dimension to having a covenant relationship with God. And that's based upon the old uh, Hitterite treaties in the Old Testament in which a conquering king would conquer a land and subject them to servitude. They would be his vassals and he would promise them that he would provide for them, take care of them, protect them, give them what they needed as long as they obeyed the stipulations of the covenant. And when they disobeyed the stipulations of the covenant, rather than the uh, great king blessing the people, he would rather turn into a warrior and bring curses upon the people. But there's another dimension to the covenant. And this dimension is the more personal, relational aspect of it. And the covenant here meaning the covenant of grace and our salvation. God enters into covenant with us and is like a marriage. And that's what Hosea is giving us here. He's giving us the more personal, relational dimension of how God is engaged with us and the, the dimensions of the relationship and spell out the amazing, astounding, uh, overwhelming nature of his love toward us. And I don't think you can appreciate that unless you understand that our relationship with God encompasses both. Yeah, there is a strong legal and forensic aspect to salvation. Sin is a violation of God's law. There will be a final judgment. And there will be, as it were, a court case. And the evidence against us will be weighed. And the guilty verdict is already clear. But God himself has intervened. The sentence that God's people deserve has already been carried out in Jesus at the cross. He bore the penalty of our sin. The verdict that our lives deserve is taken by Jesus. And the verdict his life deserved is given to us. He bears the judgment against our disobedience while we enjoy the rewards of his obedience. Through Christ... The justice of God is satisfied, and he acquits his guilty people. And so that is the understanding of salvation from a forensic or legal point of view. But our salvation isn't just merely a legal transaction. Salvation is not just an act of justice. It is an act of love. God is betrayed by our sin. He is betrayed by our sin. But whereas you and I might respond to betrayal with resentment, spite, and anger, God responds with mercy. He is not an impartial judge in the sky, coldly calculating legal intricacies. He's a jilted lover. He feels our betrayal. He is passionate about his people. And so when Hosea begins his text, you're really allowed through the prophet, 
and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to see something of the nature of God's response to this betrayal. And so the focus of attention in this text uh, returns to the enacted parable that we've spoken of, and it must be interpreted at two levels. The initial level concerns Hosea and his family. But this is the, merely the foundation for the second level, which is an allegory or an enacted parable of God's relationship to Israel. While the first passage may appear to be the normal form of biblical poetry, it is in fact characterized by technical expressions and a style that indicate its true character. What we have before us is a speech Specifically, a speech related to a lawsuit which is spoken in court in complaint concerning the person against whom the suit is brought. Technically, in Hebrew, this is called a rib, which you say, what is that? Well, it's a rib, R-I-B, and I thought that would be distracting, so I decided to pronounce it in Hebrew, rib. But the amazing thing about this, literarily speaking, I don't think I've ever read a transcript of any court case, and I hadn't read many, I've read a couple, that were written in poetry. But this one is written in poetry. Why do you think? Because poetry gives us the ability to be more expressive, to use more word pictures, to use more... God wants to show you his heart. He wants to show his people his heart. And while on the one hand he, he brings law, and I mean severe law, on the other hand he brings gospel, he brings hope, he brings mercy. And so those two things, judgment and restoration, oscillate all the time here. But I thought it was unique that the genre or style of literature here is poetic. And that's what it looks like even in our English Bibles. And so the two levels on which the speech must be interpreted are so sometimes so intimately interrelated that it's difficult to distinguish between them. On the first level, we must envisage Hosea and his children in court. And they are addressing words to the judge in the presence of Gomer. Hosea's purpose in the lawsuit is to obtain a decree of divorce from his wife. Now, there are a lot of scholars that debate that. And some of them say God hates divorce. He would never divorce anyone. But again, this is all anthropopathic and anthropomorphic language. God is trying to communicate something to his people. So as, as John Calvin once said, the Bible is lisping to children. It's baby talk. And that's what God does here. And so he uses Hosea and his children and his wife. And his purpose is divorce. divorce. And even in this speech, uh, as it begins with the formal proclamation of divorce, she is not my wife and I am not her husband. The reason for bringing the suit was to be found in the actions of the wife. She had been persistently unfaithful, committing adultery with other men. 
Were their acts in question were simply adulterous liaisons, or whether Goma, Gomer had resorted once again to sexual activities of the fertility cult by being a Baal-worshipping cultic prostitute? We don't know. We're not sure. Details aren't given. The latter seems more like, likely as you continue to read the description here. But this is some bad stuff. This is some really bad bad stuff and so the entire scene is tragic we have a deserted husband we have three children who are compelled by the actions of the wife mother and by the requirements of human law to take the case to court but the second level of uh, interpretation is no less tragic for Hosea family life is still functioning as an allegory of God's relationship to Israel in the divine court, Israel is arraigned. God is present in multiple roles. At once, the offended party, the prosecutor, the judge. And to the divine court, the nation's crimes are proclaimed. It is unfaithfulness to God and its pursuit of false faith such that marriage of covenant can no longer continue. God must seek divorce from Israel. For all the bleakness of their scene, it was not without a slim ray of hope. Adultery, according to Hebrew law, was punishable by what? Death. Yet at neither level of interpretation is the death penalty sought. Indeed, for all the pathos of this passage, it is not without the remnants of warmth. Hosea, despite the action he takes, still loves his wife. He still loves her. You can see it if you look. He still loves his wife just as God continues to love Israel despite the divorce which the covenant stipulations compel him to seek. In the course of this divorce proceedings, three condemnations are made each followed by a statement of judgment introduced by the word therefore. In verses 6, 9, and 14, the condemnations and judgments f refer first to Homer and then to the allegory to Israel, but they also have a more lasting message beyond the context of their initial usage. So number one, the first condemnation is based on the woman's intention to pursue other lovers. Indeed, her words are quoted to the court. I will go after my lovers. Doesn't sound like repentance to me. She had consciously set off on a very unfaithful trajectory and path. She had deluded herself into the false belief that other lovers could enrich her and provide for her needs, and so the judgment is stated she would be forced to continue down the path of life she had chosen to its bitter and frustrating end. She would chase her lovers, but she would never catch them. She would seek them, but never find them, until at last in desperation she would perceive that the only hope lay with her first love. In the allegory, it is clear that Israel's judgment was a continuation of the path that the nation had consciously and willfully chosen. But in its passage, the hollowness of heathen love would become deadly apparent. 
And that speaks to the nature of any of us forsaking God, thinking we're going to find happiness or wholeness or peace outside of Him. And that is destined to bring you frustration, brokenness, and despair. And the problem with people who are on that path is they are deluded. They are believing their own lies. They believe their lies more than they believe the truth. And so they head headlong into destruction, willfully going that way. And the hardness of heart is hard to overlook. And so, to have known the love of God and then to quite deliberately choose another path is to invite the frustration of a loveless existence. For having once known true love, all of the rest, all the rest of love's uh, allures tantalize, but remain beyond our grasp. The pursuit of other lovers and the searching for what we think it may provide eventually becomes a cul-de-sac in which, if we have any wisdom at all, we may perceive that there is only one love in which the full provision and full satisfaction could be found. And we uh, perceive a further truth in the prophet's words. Even as we chase and strive in the cul-de-sac of empty love. Do you know what a cul-de-sac is? It's the bottom of the bag. That's what it is, literally. And so when I'm using the term cul-de-sac, I thought it sounded a little classier than bottom of the sack or bottom of the bag. Even as we chase and strive in the cul-de-sac of empty human love, we are pursued and hounded by a greater love that will not cease and that will not let us go. The hound of heaven is on the march. The second condemnation was addressed to the wife's willful ignorance. She did not know that her husband provided the needs of life. She did not know, uh, and we don't know whether it was simple ignorance or willful ignorance, she would seek the fulfillment of her needs elsewhere. Likewise, Israel was willfully ignorant that God provided the grain and the wine and the oil, in verse 8, on which life depended. Yet those three things were explicitly a part of the provision of the covenant, a sign of God's love to his people. In judgment, ignorance was to be, to be treated by the withdrawal of all provisions. Only in the absence of God's life-sustaining gifts would Israel return to its senses and the knowledge of God. And so the willful ignorance that is here condemned is a commoner affliction than we might think. It is induced by the conscious setting aside of the realities of existence as revealed by faith. We know that we have needs, and we think we are the ones best equipped to seek them out. As Israel sought to fulfill needs uh, in the resort to alien faith, so too do we. There are times when only destitution when physical or spiritual, can bring us back to the clear-sighted knowledge of who the great provider really is. The removal of God's provision, though it be an act of judgment, provides nevertheless the opportunity to learn again the source of that which sustains true life. 
I think it was Edwards who said that all the good gifts that God gives man, just as common grace blessings, man turns around and uses as weapons to drive him away. And that is precisely what Israel has done. And, and what is it that they've done that's so awful? They've fallen into what is called syncretism, which is a blending. Here's what happened. As they lived in the culture, they began to blend in the beliefs of the culture around them, Canaan, the world around them, and that began to shape their faith to where it became the culture swallowed up what they believed about Yahweh, and they moved more toward Baal worship. And you want to know why? The great American idea of pragmatism. It worked better. The people who were worshiping Baal had bigger houses. They had nicer chariots. They had better gardens. They had more fruitfulness. Things were going well for them. They were so successful. And so the people of Israel gradually, it wasn't, it wasn't a big, huge leap all at once. It was uh, death by a thousand cuts, so to speak, as they gradually began to move toward, away from God and toward these foreign gods. And they would still come to church on Sunday morning like you do. And they would still sing praise and worship and offer sacrifices. But God would say, I detest it. I don't want it. Not from you. Why? Because their heart was after the Baal gods. Now, what is Baal? Well, it's a complicated subject. But he is sort of the, the chief major power god of all the pantheon of deities. Let me, let me talk about that for a moment just to get you to see how terrible this is. There are stories in the ancient Near, Near East regarding Baal, and salient to our study of Baal worship, here's one of them. There are accounts of Baal's victory over Yom, that is the sea god, who represents chaos and is in constant threat to destroy order, and of Baal's ongoing struggle in which he needs the help of his sister wife, the goddess Anat, to keep Moat, the god of summer drought and death at bay, lest fertility fail and Baal's sovereignty be overthrown. Central to that fertility is Baal's sexual encounter with Anat, who gives birth to a calf. Cultic prostitution seems to have developed in imitation of that cosmic act of intercourse between Baal and Anat. Although extra-biblical evidence of ritual sexual activity is scarce, Hosea is the best single source we have. And so the connection between myth and ritual is well attested to in the Middle East. And so we had temples set aside to Baal. We had, and so here's what would happen. When you would go to worship, you would go by, of course, at some point by the temple prostitutes that were part of the cult, and you would engage in that activity hoping to encourage Baal to re-engage with a gnat and give birth to fertility, which would mean what? It would rain upon the land and increase their fertility. It was a very sophisticated thing. I mean, these people, these people, you know, aren't Jethro and Ellie Mae going to uh, California. It's sophisticated. 
Do we do that? Oh, yeah. We do. We do. And it's very subtle. And as the sermon series goes along, I'm going to spell out more clearly how you and I, mainly you, I don't do it, but you and I, no. So with that said, (coughs) the third condemnation, I don't think I've talked about this yet, points to the failure that is forgetfulness in verse 13. In going her own way, Gomer had forgotten Hosea. In pursuing other gods, Israel had forgotten the Lord. And it is not normal amnesia that is meant for the simple forgetting of facts. Rather, it is forgetfulness of the bonds of a faithful relationship, which makes possible the faithless pursuit of alien liaisons. The third judgment turns condemnation into promise. Israel would be taken, this is verses 14 and 15, into the wilderness, a place of trial, and would learn again such dependence upon the love of God that a new entry into the promised land would be possible. The valley of Achor, which in the past had been a valley of trouble, that's where uh, Achan stole the booty, if you remember that, in Joshua 7, the valley of Achor in the past had been the valley of trouble, but would become the valley of hope through which access to a new land would be gained. Persons who commit adultery do not literally forget that they are married. Rather, they forget the bonds of marriage and the commitments of faithful love. And the person who turns aside from the faith does not literally forget it all, but forgets only the obligations of life and love. For all such, the experience of a wilderness is a time of both hardship and hope. It is hardship to be cut off from the comforts and self-sufficiency of normal life. It is a source of hope to learn again that the valley of trouble through which we walk can become for us a door of hope. And so, many ways, this text almost looks like uh, the parable of the prodigal son. Because you remember when the prodigal son and, and God, even in the, uh, his speech here in the word, says that maybe, maybe she will return to me. I will, uh, at the end of verse 7, then she shall say, I will go and to return to my first husband, husband, for it was better for me now than then. You remember how the, the uh, prodigal son goes and lives in riotous living and wastes all of his inheritance. And he has a moment in the pigsty where he comes to himself and he says, life was so much better at home than it is here. Maybe I could go back and find my way as a hired servant. They're living better than I live now. Now those motives are terrible. But God backs us up in a corner puts a hedge around us, blocks us, frustrates us from finding any life or hope outside of him. I want to tell you something. Forsaking the living God, forgetting God, and leaving him and walking away is insanity. It is absolute insanity. Well, is there any hope? Sometimes it feels hopeless, doesn't it? But the pendulum of chronological perspective has now swung forward again. We're in verse 16 is where we're looking. Uh, The awful address in the divorce court with its anticipation of coming separation is in the past. 
And the prophecy in verses 16 through 23, though it cannot be dated precisely, comes from a later period in Hosea's ministry. His children, whose names are mentioned in this message, are by now young adults. But as before, the brighter prospect seen in these verses must be viewed against the darker background of the time of judgment in which they were delivered. And the time of judgment is when the Assyrian army came and destroyed uh, the northern kingdom. And that was judgment. And so there's hope. After judgment, there's hope. Hosea looks forward to a new and future work of God. And he cannot tell us how far in the future this uh, era of which he now speaks, yet his words concerning the di- distant days of salvation are penetrated through and through by hope and conviction. And so the prophecy in these verses, 16 to 23, are really related again in three parts. Let's see if we have enough time to look at three parts. No, we don't. Well, you just listen fast. We'll see how we do. In a sense, the prophecy given here is divided in three parts. And it it speaks of that day. In verses 16, 18, and 21, you'll see the phrase, that day, on that day. That day is a future period lying beyond the present day of judgment in which God's salvation would be known again. In a sense, the prophecy is a prediction, not in the sense of specifying a day and time when certain things would happen, but rather in a sense of affirming someday God would act again. For both ancient Israel and the modern reader of Hosea's book, the day in which the prophet writes has a futuristic ring to it. Yet for all the future focus, the prophetic words in each of these three sections of the passage have something to say and express as in part as a present reality. The first prophecy anticipates a new marriage. Look at verses 16 and 17. The marriage would be between God and Israel, though the language is a haunting reminder that Hosea is divorced from Gomer. And so the prophet engages in effective wordplay. A little knowledge of Hebrew is recalled, but the noun Baal in Hebrew may mean husband with cultural overtones of Lord and Master. And the noun may also function as the name of the Canaanite master god, and as such it must be translated Baal. The word ish simply means man. I'm giving you too much Hebrew. But the transformation would be that for the return to the Lord as true husband would concurrently be an abandonment of Baal as a false master. The prophecy is one of restoration and love and intimate relationship and is not without its glimpses of grief. The bales of Israel's lips in the past caused grief to the still-loving divine husband. Gordon Lightfoot, I doubt very many people. Anybody in here know who Gordon Lightfoot is? He's Canadian, folk singer. Anyway, he said this in a popular blues song many years ago. I heard you talking in your sleep, but the loved one in sleep was murmuring about another name, dreaming of another lover. 
And as in human experience, the sleeping murmur of another's name can cause terrible grief to the husband or wife, so too the words on Israel's lips cut to the heart of God. Perhaps it's only when we perceive how deeply we hurt God that we can perceive how gracious the promise is of a new marriage and a love restored. The second part of the prophecy anticipates a new covenant. And in many ways, it is a repetition of the essential substance of the preceding section, but it has a new focus in the first part. And the focus is on the internal intimacy of love. Here, it is on the external implications of the New Covenant relationship of marriage. The New Covenant of the future would be one characterized by peace which would be experienced on two fronts. Israel would experience peace with the world of nature and with animals and birds and living things. But in addition, God would destroy the weapons of war and grant the nation peace from its enemies. And so the peace from external powers would be a period of new intimacy in the marriage of a renewed covenant. And the prophecy of peace and the new covenant is rooted in the conviction that the Lord was God both of the world of nature and the affairs of human beings and the nations. These perspectives uh, still lie in the future. Although the Prince of Peace has visited the world, all nations have continued relentlessly in the practice of war. Yet there's an insight here that is perpetually and presently relevant The words were first declared to the nation, threatened on every side, destined for destruction, and the world today is little different, for storm clouds of war have not ceased to gather. Uh, We must strive for peace among the nations of the world, but it will remain a distant dream until the human race is at peace with God. Finally, in the third and final part of this prophecy, The names of Hosea's children are changed. The changes are introduced by a chain of speech, bringing news from heaven to earth. Jezreel's name remains the same, but its meaning has changed. Initially, as you know, if you've been listening, uh, the name recalled a place of bloody massacre and doom. It was an ominous name. But in the name's uh, transformation, uh, the... Uh, etymology is drawn out. Jezreel means God shall sow. And that sense, uh, it intimates God's new sowing of his people in the land. And on the child, not pitied, God would exercise compassion and change uh, the name. And not my people would be called my people, and the return would respond to God as if a wedding ceremony, thou art my God. And so today, what I wanted to communicate to you during this service is to understand and see something of the nature of our covenant-keeping God's heart toward his people. And while uh, there is the transcendence of God over our humanness, in reality, he is using these analogies to communicate to us Something of woundedness. Something of betrayal, the sense of betrayal. Sin is not a minor issue. Sin should never be looked at in a cavalier fashion. My old systematic 
Professor R.C. Sproul used to say, sin is cosmic treason. But it's more than that. It is wounding the heart of a lover. It is being unfaithful. It is adultery. And the wonderful glory of the gospel is Christ has come for us. And, and the emphasis here I want to make is if in our covenant relationship with God there are the legal aspects of obedience to the law and there's the personal aspects of love like a marriage, only Christ fulfilled that. Israel never did. Adam never did. We never did. Christ did. And he has given us the hope of being able to live and experience this amazing love. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the text of Hosea. There's so much more here than was said today. But we do pray that you would speak to us. Some of us have been pretty casual about our relationship with you. Some of us have placed you on the back burner. Some of us have really forgotten what it means to be an adopted child of yours. And we're trying to get our identity from other things and other places. And we're driving ourselves crazy and running wild. Lord, we pray we would repent today and come back home and return to the only one that gives us what we long for most. And that is a love that will never let us go, that will never fail us, that will never forget us. Now, Lord, as we continue to worship, may we give as people who respond to your love. In Jesus' name, amen.